Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And refresh page. Nothing. I'm waiting for the new Nate Silver website to launch. I have to fill out my college basketball bracket. I want to order a burrito. I need to decide whether or not to get a flu shot. I'm trying to figure out whether to have... Wait, no, I'm not going public with that one. And refresh page. No, nothing. Anyway, Nate's got the data, right? He can help me decide. Wofford or Michigan, beef tongue with pickled tomato burrito or lamb shoulder with spiced prunes. Protect myself from the flu or take a chance that Jenny McCarthy is actually a medical genius. Keep the baby, knowing that it's probably Matthew McConaughey's or... Actually, let's edit out that last one. And refresh page. Nothing. The the point is, Nate... Where is the new site? You are going to help me. I was going to outsource the rational portion of my brain to you, freeing up space for sordid, self-indulgent fantasies. But you're not here when you said you'd be. And refresh page. Uh Uh-uh. You know what? I put way too much faith in this other person. I don't need Nate Silver to tell me what to do. There's way too much mythologizing of this guy. Betsy, can you pass me the magic eight ball, please? Thank you. Should I get a beef tongue burrito? Outlook, not so good. Will Wofford beat Michigan? It is decidedly so. How about my flu shot? Reply hazy. Try again. Well, two out of three ain't bad. Take that, Nate. I don't need you to plan my life. Today on The Scramble, utopian schools, violent divorces, vaccination crazies, David Brenner, and the long wait for Nate. And now, will he be able to go the whole hour without a bathroom break? Very doubtful. Colin McEnroe and refresh page. <gasps> it's up. Thanks for nothing, eight ball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you have to depend on somebody or something. And yes, later in the show today, we will be talking about the launch of 538, which is Nate Silver's brand new venture. It actually did go up between noon and one today. We had actually written that. I'd written that intro uh, at noon. And then as Wolfie went to record it, the site went up, so we had to change it, which is what that's what we like about this Monday show. I wanted to do a show where I didn't always know what I was doing. I mean, even more so than usual. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Nate Silver a little bit later. At the end, we will say goodbye uh, to uh, David Brenner, who died over the weekend. We're going to start with Mark Oppenheimer, our super guest for the day. He's the author of three books and the ebook Zen Predator of the Upper East Side. You heard that story here, too. He writes a religion column for The New York Times. He does a lot of things, actually. He has the best-run journal journalism career in, I would say, the Northeast and therefore probably the United States. So uh, he's joining us right now from our New Haven studios. Hi, Mark. I like to say I have the best-run journalism career in the tri-state area because nobody knows what the three states are. Right. I, so I, who's going to quarrel with that? I would defend that statement. Anyway. I, I, <laughs> if you need someone to defend that statement, you just give them my phone number. Thanks. Um, so we're talking about three things today. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea, of course, is to let the super guests decide what the topics are. We're going to begin with something that you did for This American Life as another part of your extremely well-run journalism career. Uh, and this has to do, and this, it's been much in the news of late, uh, it, this has to do with the difficulty uh, among Orthodox Jews, uh, specifically among Orthodox Jewish women, for uh, of obtaining a certain kind of cooperation that they need from right. their ideally <coughs> soon-to-be ex-husbands. Uh, I'll let you pick up the story from there. <coughs> sure. Um, 
So let me put this in, in Catholic terms to start. Uh, as we're in one of the most Catholic states in the country. Uh, in Catholicism, you know, you can get a civil divorce, but if you ever want to remarry within the church, you need to have your marriage annulled, right? And annulments used to be very hard to get, um, but these days they're much easier to get. So, But if you want a priest to do the second wedding, right, you need to have the first marriage annulled. Okay. So in traditional Judaism, in Orthodox Judaism, and for many, many Jews, even in other branches, um, if they want to separate from their partner, they want to divorce, this is perfectly permissible within Judaism, but the, the husband has to initiate the divorce by writing out a piece of paper called a get, G-E-T. This, is, this goes all the way back to Exodus. It's like right there in the Bible, okay? A divorce happens when the man writes out a get and hands it to his wife. So this is pretty non-negotiable. It's like hard to read between the lines. It's hard to find a loophole. The husband's got to do it. What this means is that from time immemorial, if a woman wanted out, let's say she married this guy, she was 19, she was starry-eyed, he was rich, he'd gone to Harvard Law. This was a big problem back in the 13th century. A lot of these guys had gone to Harvard Law. Yeah. And uh, she married him, and then within a month, she realized, holy cow, I don't I don't get along with this guy. Uh, you know, I don't like what he, what he chooses when he has the remote. Um, maybe he's abusive. Maybe he's a sociopath. And she wants out. Um, well, she has to ask him for a get. Now, in 99% of the cases, God willing, he gives her the get because he wants out also because they're not compatible. But in some tiny percentage of cases, he will say, okay, I'll give you the get if you give me a million dollars or I'll give you the get if you promise I get full custody of our infant child and you never see him. So he, he can put these onerous conditions on or sometimes he'll say, nope, I'm never going to give you the get. I, I love you. I worship you. We're going to be married forever until we're both dead. 70 years. So um, what this has meant is that over time, Orthodox Jewish communities have had to find ways to pressure recalcitrant husbands into giving the get. Now, what's been in the news lately is there has always been a tiny, tiny, tiny um, underground of thugs for hire who will give a beatdown to the recalcitrant husband. In fact, the third episode ever of The Sopranos involved an Orthodox Jewish uh, gangster hiring Tony Soprano and his gangsters to beat up the guy's son-in-law so that the son-in-law would give the Orthodox Jew's daughter a get. Um, and recently, there have been a couple cases in New Jersey where some of these thugs have been captured in an FBI sting operation actually by the same U.S. and then have been indicted by the same U.S. attorney who's going after Chris Christie. This guy's name is Paul Fishman. I think he has a very bright future. He seems to have a nose for <laughs> for these kinds of cases. So what I did on This American Life was a story about um, one of these women who's trapped in a marriage like this with a husband who won't release her. And also I happened to have audio recording of one of these rabbis who had been recently arrested, as it turned out, uh, for his part in one of these underground operations. All right, let's hear a little clip uh, from Mark's report on This American Life. So for now, if you're an aguna like Atal Dodelson, a desperate woman trapped in this limbo, paying some rabbi to intervene almost makes sense. You know what, the numbers that I've heard, my husband is demanding a lot more than that for the get. So you're telling me I would, I'd pay a third party a small amount of money and, and he'll get rid of the problem for me in ex instead of having to fight it out with my husband and give him much, much, much more? It, 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 if you take out the fact that he's beating people up, that, that sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> <laughs> I like the merry clarinet music that comes up behind this. Yes, I Ira's engineers had some uh, fun with the – they called the, the episode uh, Sunrise, Sun Get. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and, and so one of the one of the rabbis in question is this guy that you do did feature on, on this American Life. Uh, his name is Rabbi Epstein, and he chillingly describes this trip down to Colombia. I think it was um, <laughs> to 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 get a get basically to get the cooperation of a recalcitrant um, ex husband to be, and and suggests that he had with him like an ex CIA guy, and that I think his words to you were Mark. It got physical. Yeah, he so he had Mendel Epstein, whom I interviewed, and I had this this audio recording uh, of him telling me about this at his dining room table in Brooklyn. He um, is kind of a self mythologizing figure. He clearly is caught between not wanting to go on the record saying he's done these illegal things and between wanting the world to know because he's so proud of his ingenuity. But he had actually told this story on a documentary called Women Unchained, which by the way is a fabulous documentary. And if you can if you can get it, there's a website and I think it's on Netflix. I mean, Women Unchained. If you're interested in the story. It's by a documentarian named Beverly Siegel. He had told this story on Women Unchained about a woman whose husband had fled to Colombia with their kidnapped son and without having given her a get. So he went down there with some like ex-CIA or Delta Force black ops guy (laughs) and they found this – the ex-husband or the husband in a little you know, shack somewhere – in the, they had to get through like Civil War torn – it was Peru. I think they had to get through Lima with bullets whizzing everywhere. They found the guy. He was showering with his mestizo maid and his little boy was watching TV on the floor, the kidnapped boy. And according to Rabbi Epstein, the black ops special forces guy went into the bathroom, uh, found him in the shower and then you know talked him into giving his wife the get. <laughs> and we don't know if there was a knife to the throat or, or, or what their – what there was. But Epstein told me this story in a kind of sanitized version as well. And, and you know, now he's under indictment actually for a different operation. But, um, you know, he wasn't terribly discreet about what he does for a living. I mean, if it weren't so illegal, it'd be a great FX series, you know, Rabbi Commandos who go there and, and get get justice because they, you know, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, the, the woman that you're talking about, and the, but we should explain the term that you use, Aguna, uh, it, it means chained woman. It right? means chained wife or anchored wife in Hebrew. So it's a very vivid term for what these women go through. So she's in a, a pretty terrible position. And so she's, she flirts, I mean, just, you know, rhetorically anyway, with the idea of hiring one, one of these goony kind of guys. But um, she actually did eventually get the get, right? She got the get. Yeah. She, um, I don't know if my story played any part in it. She also was in the New York Post. I mean, she um, she had hired a publicist to help her get the word out uh, about what her ex-husband w- was was doing. Um, and by the way, I should I should caveat I should have a, put in the caveat that his uh, side of things is very very different. He claims that she's the one who held up the divorce for all sorts of reasons, and unfortunately, no one from his camp would talk to me on the radio. So inevitably, we presented a kind of biased side because look, we wanted to give equal time, but he wouldn't come on with us, and she would. Um, so yeah, she did get her get, and um, it it cost her some money. Um, the exact amount I've uh, heard rumors of, but can't say for certain right now. Uh, but she's free, and she's uh, she she's probably going to end up remarried, and you know, so will he. I hope they both move on with their lives. So, but we were assuming somewhere in the six figures plus whatever she had to pay her publicist and everybody else she had. Uh, uh, I can say with I can say with ninety nine percent certainty it was in the six figures. Yes. So that's expensive. Now, is Mark? Did you? Were you able to pinpoint, is this happening in any particular sector of the Orthodox Jewish community? Obviously, the Orthodox Jewish community is a big thing with right. a lot of different colors right. in it. It's hundreds of thousands of people, um, and it's a growing part of, of the Jewish world. And here's what's really, really, really interesting, is that you know, to most Americans, including most American Jews who are secular or reform or conservative, but are basically 
very much contemporary Americans. Um, the Orthodox world is this monolith, right? They're the guys who walk around with the yarmulkes on and, you know, they don't work on Saturday and they're just this monolithic thing. But actually there's a real rift within Orthodoxy between the kind of liberal end of Orthodoxy, which is beginning to take women's rights very, very seriously and thinks it's horrible that a man would ever, ever chain or trap his wife in a marriage. Um, and a more conservative or right-wing kind of traditionalist orthodoxy that basically is like, hey, that's the way it's written in Torah. And, um, you know, we have to pressure men to give their wives gets, but at the end of the day, um, we can't really actually eradicate the problem. And the difference in orthodoxy between those who feel like this is a women's rights issue, including many who would call themselves orthodox feminists, men too, who would call themselves orthodox feminists, and a sort of more right-wing, throw their hands up in the air, say, not sure we can ever solve this problem, that's going to create a real, there is a real rift there already. And, you know, I, I don't want to uh, extend this too far, but it does seem as though you could extrapolate from there to a lot of different kinds of religious movements that have orthodox factions within in them, right? There's this constant pressure from the secular modernized world on these set of values. And whether you're Amish or Mormon or an orthodox Jew or something else, uh, this is a, um, a landscape that somehow or other you have to navigate. Right. Uh, absolutely. And it's, it's part of the problem that comes with being in America, right? On the one hand, this is in many very real ways, the best country in the world to practice your religion, whatever it is, because the government will stay out of your way. They'll give you a tax exemption. The courts are very look very favorably on religious exemptions for things like schooling, even vaccinations, as I think we're going to get to in this show. I mean, it's a very pro-religion country, and, and we don't have religious wars. I mean, to our credit, we've killed each other in this country over other things, but you, you don't get killed here for your religion with the very, very rare exceptions. On the other hand, this is also the country where pop culture and modernity will seduce your children away with the greatest ease and rapidity. So, you know, if you're in the orthodox or what some call the ultra-orthodox world, and you see that 50 years ago, only 1% of marriages end in divorces, and now it's 5%. I'm making those numbers up, but right. it's, you know, well, that looks like a five-fold increase, and it looks like your community is coming apart at the seams. So you tend to have these very, very big fights over what seem like fairly solvable issues. Um, and it seems to me the more kind of hermetic, the more closed uh, the, the system is, the more the pressure bubbles up in some other place. So suddenly you get, uh, you know, a couple of rabbis who will hire some goons to solve your problem. Uh, I mean, if in fact there isn't any other way to solve the problem. D definitely, right, because if you're a hermetically sealed community, you might have strong community um, uh, taboos against, for example, going to the secular courts for all sorts of problems. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened is some some lawyers have tried to um, sue in secular court husbands who won't give their wives gets um, by using a uh, pain and suffering kind of – they're trying to make it a tort. Um, and in Israel, that's actually worked. So the question is, you know, can are, can can a community find ways around that use the the devices of modernity and secular society? If not, do you just end up hiring, uh, you know, a hitman or a, a kneecap breaker? Uh, that's what it seems like. All right, Betsy Kaplan, uh, who uh, whom I serve, um, was, was not giving me a get to, to talk right now about the Sudbury School. We may have to come back to that on another day. It's a really interesting topic. might be a whole other show, but Mark's got a very uh, interesting article in New Republic about that. We're talking to Mark uh, Oppenheimer right now. So we're going to go from there to 
um, an outbreak of measles. There have been two cases that I'm aware of in Connecticut. Uh, a bunch more, though, in the tri-state area where Mark's Greer— The tri-state the, area. Yeah, the tri-state area. Where the, Every part of the country, somebody on the nightly news will talk about the tri-state area. Yeah, exactly. It's always, always a different area. So we've got uh, outbreaks in New York. Um, and, and so— um, and in, I guess there also has been an outbreak in L.A., so it's not just the tri-state area. Um, invariably, when there are these outbreaks, a lot of the people who wind up in hospitals uh, are intentionally not vaccinated. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this. Where, where's this coming from? Okay, so I'm not the epidemiologist. I'm not the expert. But mm -hmm. if, if we—I mean, my stake in this is that I have an unvaccinated child because she's eight months old, and you don't get the, uh, the MMR vaccine until you're a year. Because it's a live uh, vaccine, so the 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 pediatric the, the pediatric uh, recommendation pretty much across the board is you get measles vaccine at a year. If you're a baby under that age, you're unvaccinated, um, which means that if the three and four and five year olds around you aren't vaccinated and they get measles, they can pass it on to you. And if you're a really tiny infant, you could die. So this, for me, this comes from a place of having an eight month old who, um, you know, who's who's very very vulnerable because of her age. Uh, we know from the news reports that um, the anti-vaccination movement um, has adherence on what you'd call the political left and the political right. Mm -hmm. For some people, especially on the right, it's an anti-government thing. For some people on the left, it's a kind of, um, you know, sense of uh, it's, it's a, for lack of a better word, it's a whole foods thing. <laughs> it's a sense <laughs> of, you know, there's something unnatural about vaccines and they feel that like healthy living can, um, can protect you, uh, which is not true. Um, and uh, then it's also a parents' rights thing. So there's all these different places where the anti-vaccine movement comes from. It's very strong among the educated. It's very strong among the middle class and upper middle class. Um, and, you know, it's taking us to a place where we could end up with a resurgence of, you know, of polio. Uh, I mean, where people could be, could be killed and maimed uh, because of, I mean, children have died of measles. Um, in this country recently because of uh, the anti-vaccine movement. Well, one of the questions, w ways that this question bubbles up, I think, is even in the world of journalism. So, um, in fact, uh, the science and medicine editor of Slate magazine wrote about this not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, the Daily Beast, Deirdre Imus, wife of Don Imus, who's from Connecticut and is one of the people agitating uh, for the anti-vaccine movement, at least to a, in her own kind of modified way, uh, but actually a big voice for, for this movement. And so they let her have daily beast virtual space to write an essay about how maybe you shouldn't get a flu shot. Um, the Over on Slate, uh, the guy's saying, you know, there are just some things we really don't debate because it's one side's too crazy. One side is there just isn't enough science to really even warrant airing out both sides. There aren't two sides. Of course, he's saying this in the context of a long conversation, a lot of uh, pushback that he's getting from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., yet another one of the people yeah. who's agitating for the anti-vaccine movement. It's not as though it's all Jenny McCarthy. You know, it's, uh, there are well, some people. It's, it's not all Jenny McCarthy. It's also Deirdre Imus and it's, and it's RFK Jr. What it's not ever is pediatricians. Right. I mean, you, you, I'm sure there's one out there somewhere, but it, you have to search long and hard. And I can tell you that I've easily read pieces by the top 50 notable people in the anti-vaxxer movement, and not a one is a pediatrician. Um, and they also tend not to be over 50 or 60, because if they are, they remember when, you know, people, when polio came around in the summer. And, you know, my father was one of the original Salk babies. He grew up in Pittsburgh, and he was one of the people on whom um, the vaccine in its early stages was tested. Um, and, you know, he was, so this was early, early 50s, I think, so he was five or six. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he and my mother, they've talked to me as of other people in, you know, the boomer and up 
uh, aged bracket who said, you know, when, when polio came around, I mean, if, if a friend of yours got it, you didn't know for people don't remember. You didn't know for a couple of weeks if after the virus passed, if you if you'd emerge unscathed, or if you emerge uh, mildly crippled, if you'd emerge in an iron lung for life. Um, I mean, nobody who lived through that and then saw the other side, where just a couple years later, nobody had polio. Uh, nobody who lived through that, I think, is anti-vaccine. And yet, you know, Jenny McCarthy has the luxury of not having lived through that. I mean, it really is interesting what, what some of these media people have been able to do. And I sent you a little transcript. Right. There, but I just want to set this up. Senator Lieberman's dalliance with the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. But, but that was for a specific reason, at least so I believe. I can never prove this. But what had happened, and this was in 2006, uh, Lieberman had a rather cozy relationship with Don Imus, who, and this was before Don Imus had his downfall. Right. So this was a rather large and powerful a cl- radio A classy show. bunch, I might <laughs> <Exactly>. say. <laughs> so, but, so this is a large and powerful national radio show uh, where Joe right. Lieberman could air a lot of his uh, opinions and get a fair amount of prominent airtime. And for some reason or other, in one of his appearances in is either late 2005 or uh, early 2006, I must just turned on Lieberman over the Vietnam War and ripped him apart on the air. And, and Lieberman tried to kind of josh and jolly his way back into Imus's good graces over the course of this conversation. But at the end of, end of it, uh, Imus announced to Lieberman that he was going to burn in hell for his role uh, in the Iraq War. And, and very quickly, the, the whole conversation was over. And I happened to be listening to it live, and I was thinking, wow, because, you know, Lieberman really likes being on the IMA show. It's really good for him. It doesn't really conform very well to all of his ideas about decency in media, but he doesn't really care that much. He likes the platform. What's he going to do? A few months went by, and suddenly he's back on the air, and, and one of Deirdre Imus's, Don Imus's wife's pet projects, has been this kind of anti-vaccine campaign, and she wants Congress to do more investigations of it. And, and suddenly Lieberman is on the air um, truckling and toadying to this idea that maybe, yeah, it might be a good idea if we did a little bit more investigations of this of the vaccines. And I was listening and thinking, he knows that's not a good idea. That, that, that was just the price of admission. To get back on, on IMAS. Back onto the show. But I was have, shocked. Have you have you touted that idea before? Is it coming yes. out here and now? No, I've touted no. that idea Okay, okay. So, I'm, a, I'm a tenured professor of Lieberman studies. Of three <laughs> or four different universities. Is that Liebermanology or Liebermania? Yeah, well, it's both, actually. <laughs> I'm widely published on these things. But, you know, just back to the journalism question, because I know you're a journal- journalist who thinks long and hard about this stuff. So even if— Do uh, you yeah, cover this stuff? How do you cover yeah, it? Yeah, how do you yeah. cover it? Exactly. In other words, you know, you and I can agree this is nonsense and it's dangerous crazy nonsense. But how do you cover dangerous, crazy nonsense that has a certain amount of traction? Do you right. refuse to talk about it or do you talk it out and then just say, well, here's the science, here's the numbers, yeah. here's why they're wrong? I mean, that's a hard question, which may be one reason why I've never written about this particular one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so, uh, you know, one doesn't want to give it a platform. Um, and yet, I mean, it, you know, another reason I haven't written about it, I'm not a science journalist. <laughs> like Nobody's asking me to write about it. But um, you know, I think that uh, you know one thing you can do is cover really cover the cases where they pop up. I mean, it, one doesn't want to you know say, well, we'll wait for a death and then we'll cover the heck out of it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, you know, we have these two cases in Fairfield County. Um, you know, given their provenance, we, these could be middle class, upper middle class people. They could be educated. They could be from either political party. It cuts across party lines. Um, and I, I raise their status, their sort of socioeconomic status, only to say that, of course, there are elements in our society who think that you know pathologies reside only in the underclass, and here's a pathology that resides very much in the in the overclass. Uh, it's it's a one percent kind of uh, pathology, and. Um, 
you know, I think you have to cover it, especially when when you see these cases and you have to cover it. I mean, I didn't see enough coverage, for example. I mean, Channel 3 was on it and I think the Register was on it. I mean, there there was coverage. But, um, you know, if, if measles came back to Fairfield County of all places, um, you know, that's, that's um, kind of shocking because these are people who are getting pediatric advice and um, and then they're ignoring it. So there's a special kind of story you do, not that you don't cover it in other places as well, but here's a community of people who have access to um, to the best kind of health information and then turn on it. And there's something particularly sinister about that. Yeah, and I think even from the point of view of adv- advocacy, I mean, you and I are on the same side of this issue, but I think you have to cover it uh, both that way and, and in a way that that constitutes a sort of run up to that. In other words, you know, to to, um, to cover it now and say, well, at least half of these cases in, in New York and Los Angeles and probably in Fairfield County are people who you know, deliberately are not vaccinated, intentionally unvaccinated people. Um, to introduce the subject then, I think it's too late. I think, yeah, I think that's I think, right. I think beforehand you have to say there's this whole movement of people who this is what they think, this is why it's probably wrong, and then when something like this happens, you say, aha. Well, one of the other problems is that I think the pro-vaxxers have been slow on the uptake and have not been as good as they could be about creating not – that, not that reporters only respond to you know, publicity stunts. We, it's our job to uh, actually not respond to those and to respond to stuff that we, that we sense is out there and that we hear about before it becomes a PR cause, right? At the same time, you know, uh, where are the laws that are saying you know, unvaccinated children you know, can't attend public schools? Um, you know, you, the religious exemption is not good enough, that this is a public health issue. Um, and that, like, or, or where's the grappling with that question? Because I know that um, you know, in Connecticut, I and other parents, uh, it, it's almost a regular thing that you get a note from your school or from your nursery school that'll say, you should know that little Sally or little Johnny's, uh, in little Sally or Johnny's class, one or two kids this year have not received vaccines because of personal or religious preferences of the parents. It's like, well, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you don't know who the kids are, and I can understand why they can't tell you that. Um, if this is the case at every nursery school, you can't not send your kid to nursery school. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's a lot of thorny questions that would provide entry points for reporters to say, how could schools be dealing better with this? How do pediatrics practices deal with it? Um, and and I think that journalists haven't figured out the ways in either. Yeah. And, I, you know, I didn't study enough of this to even be saying the thing that I'm saying, and we have to wrap anyway. But, you know, one of the things epidemiologists do talk about is what's called herd immunity, right. which says that if enough people are vaccinated, you know, there's a herd, there's herd immunity. It's, it, the, the problem is if there are measles outbreaks, apparently the tipping point has been reached where there isn't herd immunity anymore. At least you and I are unqualified to say that, but it's totally like unqualified. Do, do we have time for me to ask you a question? Sure. OK, so you're a yoga guy, right? Uh, I have been. You have. You've been known to be a yogisto. Yeah. And in the yoga communities, there are people on the fringes, I imagine, who claim that yoga cures everything. Mm-hmm. Yoga cures cancer. Yoga cures, you know, depression. Yoga cures, you know, uh, weak urine stream, whatever. Um, do you ever find in that community that there are yoga teachers whom you otherwise like or yoga practitioners, but then who make these claims that kind of make it a difficult community to be part of? I've never, I mean, I've studied with a lot of different teachers. I've never had a teacher who did that kind of thing. I mean, I think if they do it, they do it kind of not in class. You know, there are separate kinds of conversations that might be going on. And, and I've known a lot of yoga teachers who had somewhat unusual ideas, although I, I haven't really encountered that kind of freakishly anti-scientific <laughs> point of view. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who are, 
taking yoga classes telling themselves, I will live to live forever because I do yoga. But uh, that's actually not part of the form you <laughs> sign when you go in there or anything like that. No, no guarantees. And there's little evidence that that, that, that works. No, in fact, in fact, persuasive evidence that it does not. <laughs> right. uh, Mark Oppenheimer, great to talk to you. Uh, you too. We'll have you back real soon. Maybe we can talk Thanks. about the Sudbury School next time. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be back after this. Without a car seat Why should I let her get pertussis, measles, or the most cheap? These ain't the kind of shots that kill Tupac They put the brakes on polio so little kids could walk But don't give Chuck Norris shots, though that'd be dim Chuck need vaccines? No, vaccines need him To beat some sense up in you, do what needs to be done To keep our children in the playground, not up in the wild lung Sing it I really want to immunize so freaking bad Dr. Harry Protect you from those germs you've never had well, all morning long, uh, we were refre- I was anyway refreshing the page. I wanted to see uh, the launch uh, of the uh, brand new Nate Silver site, 538. Uh, it's actually a, a brand name he's been using for quite a long time, uh, but this was a brand new venture. Uh, Josh Benton is the director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. Uh, which I think is a what are you a number eight seed? I don't. I don't the journalism lab specifically is not mentioned anywhere in the NCAA brackets. Well, I'm from South Louisiana, so I'm more in, interested in the Raging Cajuns. Oh, the Raging Cajuns. Yeah, which is a great name. Uh, all right, so um, this is this is something that has been obviously. There's always a new next best thing coming up in digital life, but you know this has been attended to in, in kind of an odd way and and with a special kind of excitement. I, I don't remember with other news sites reading articles multiple articles about who the new hires were, like who, who Nate's hired now. Um, there's been a lot of waiting for this, and I think it's because of a, a special status that Nate Silver enjoys, which I'm assuming, Josh, is partly based on 2012, a year in which he had a year unlike any year that any journalist leaning towards prognostication could have. Yeah, I think it started in, in 2008 when, when he also you know made a good call on, on, on that election. I think that, that helped get him to the New York Times and that the platform in 2012 let, let him achieve a, a kind of a scope of fame that not too many you know data journalists get to achieve. Um, it, it's worth noting that I think you know there are a lot of people who use similar statistical regression methods to to try and predict the 2012 election and did it who did it just as well as Nate Silver did it. But the the, the combination of his abilities, the platform of the New York Times, his abilities as a writer, he's a really terrific explainer and, and writer at a time when there was a lot of uh, you know, punditry talking, saying things, you know, Mitt's going to win in a landslide and all, all sorts of other things. His ability to cut through that, that combination, I think, really helped him achieve the kind of platform that he has. And, you know, he did a relatively unusual thing. He became a free agent. You know, it used to be that when you got to the New York Times, that was your last job and you stayed there until you retired. But uh, he saw the the appeal of, of going to ESPN, uh, you know, a company that has you know nearly infinite resources and uh, and, and trying to build out from there. Um, and that that move also seemed to be the product of a little bit of stress and strain that's symptomatic, I think, of stress and strain between le- sort of digital journalism, modern digital journalism, and legacy media. So, you know, even while he was there, one heard, one read that, you know, the sort of the more entrenched legacy part of the New York Times thought there was way too much attention being showered on Nate Silver. Um, and 
we now even have direct evidence from the horse's mouth, from Nate Silver's mouth, that he feels kind of the same way. He's quoted in New York Magazine as saying the op-ed columnists at the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal uh, are hedgehog-like people. That's people who can only think about one thing. They don't permit a lot of complexity in their thinking. They pull threads together from very weak evidence and draw grand conclusions based on them. They're ironically very predictable from week to week. If you know the subject that Thomas Friedman or whatever is writing about, you don't have to read the column. And, and on and on. This didn't, didn't stop where I just stopped. Uh, it was a, a pretty major diss. And there, there is this kind of stress and strain isn't unique, I don't think, to Nate Silver versus legacy media, right? Pretty much from the moment there's been digital journalism, they've been saying, well, who says Maureen Dowd knows more than we do? Right. No, I, th- I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think in the, in the particular case of the Times, it was less a matter of management versus versus this, this new way of doing things and more other other reporters and other folks, you know, who work at the, at the organization who, you know, d- as you said, didn't like the amount of the, the, the brightness of the spotlight that was shining on him and also didn't like the implicit critique that he was making, which was essentially, you don't have have to read anything else. This is going to, you know, we know the answer. Everything else is, is sort of noise. I, you know, I, I, there's no doubt that Nate has a, has a good point there and, and that he makes, makes a strong argument for it. I think it's also true that he overstates the degree to which the answer is what people really want in their, in their media coverage. Um, they want to have the, the context and the color and the political context that, that other people are providing that, that he is not. Um, so I, I think he might be arguing the case a, a bit more strenuously uh, than I might. And I also think he's he's become a lot more aggressive about putting that forward because now he is you know implicitly competing with every everything else in the in the online media world. Um, it's it's interesting that this is happening as part of a general move towards data focused journalism and the idea that um, essentially the, the the tools of journalism as they existed before the web were kind of loose and and kind of soft and and maybe not the the most uh, analytically rigorous. Um, and he's going to have a, a chance now with you know significant resources uh, and you know some plenty of backing from ESPN to uh, to try and prove his case. Well, you know, he and he seems to believe that his approach can be transferred from politics and sports, which is what he's known for so far, to also uh, science and lifestyle, and that's kind of intriguing, right? I mean, we just finished a conversation about the anti-vaccination movement, and I'd really love to see what Nate Silver would do do with that numbers-wise. You know, I, I, now I, now I'm thinking, well. You know, it's not true that that's the only place you need to go. You don't just need to talk to Nate. But, boy, he's a great place to stop uh, and visit if you're in an argument or, or, or in a confusing situation, which can be rendered a little bit more less complex if you actually have some numbers to look at. Absolutely. And, you know, you've already seen bits of this. So if you, when you think of lifestyle coverage, think of, of movie reviews. You know, uh, Before the web, generally speaking, you had a local movie critic in your local newspaper. You read his or her work, and, and that helps you form an opinion whether you're going to go see a movie or not. Now there are you know, plenty of sites that do nothing other than aggregate uh, and, and enumerate and, and essentially create a, a data-based algorithm around other people's reviews so you can get an idea of you know, what, what, the, what the consensus is and who the outliers are and to get you – know, get that extra level up when you're trying to make that sort of a decision. It, it is going to be very interesting. One of the problems with, with one of the difficulties of, of data journalism is that it relies on there being good, reliable data. And there are fields where that's the case. Sports is certainly a, a, a case of that. And I, I think anyone who is a serious fan of, say, baseball or football can, can say that 
you know, the, the quality of high-end analysis and sort of popular sports writing that is informed by statistics is so much better than it used to be. You know, if you think about the, the, the people who have been most, who, who seem the most outmoded because of the Internet, you can, I think, look at sports columnists and newspapers. Um, that form uh, has really been pushed aside by people who have hard data and can and crunch those numbers. But that same sort of data doesn't exist in every field. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how he picks and chooses and how his, his colleagues at the site pick and choose. What are the areas to, to focus on? Where they're going to start creating their own data sets, you know, gathering that, the data instead of just taking advantage of data sets that already exist. Uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to watch, watch the site evolve. Talking to Josh Benton, who's the director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard University. Um, and you know, is there a danger of trivialization by cross-contamination, by which I mean March Madness and the midterm elections aren't the same thing? Um, you know, it's all going to be laid out there on, this, uh, on one page. I mean, we see today I mean, there's so much activity on the site. Apparently, it's been crashing a little bit, but that's right. sort of good news for Nate, really. But, but you've got everything from the NCAAs to Crimea to uh, whether you should use toilet seat covers to uh, how women actually do appear in Shakespeare, how often they're in scenes and, and, and things like that. There's so you know, he's casting the wide net that we expected him to, to cast. But I just sort of wonder, I mean, having these things bump up against one another, everybody's very comfortable, as you just suggested, with um, bombing basketball with big data. But to do it and then in the next breath try to do that with the elections, uh, I guess a lot of it it will depend on the tone, whether he's able to sort of shift in tone as he goes from subject to subject. Yeah, you know, that doesn't bother me that much because I think of, you know, the classic American Metro newspaper, which included long-form investigations and city hall coverage and baseball box scores and comic strips and recipes. And, you know, I think that there's a long and happy tradition of, of you know, an assemblage of different topics and different modes within one sort of media package. In some ways, that's what the, the Internet uh you know, broke up for traditional media models because now if you only wanted the sports part of that package, you could go to ESPN.com instead of your local newspaper. If you only wanted the, the movie reviews, you know, the movie listings, you could go get you know, your own resource for that online. So in a sense, I don't think that the, the uniformity is not going to be in subject matter. It might not even be in tone. It's going to be in editorial approach. It's that they're, they're going to attack every subject that they attack from a, a statistically-minded, data-centric, analytical point of view. And I think that that sort of, in the sense that you know, you you would read a you would read a newspaper uh, and you would have an idea of the kind of content that would be in it, not because there was all the same subject matter, but because there was a consistent editorial approach across sections. I think you're going to see that on on this side as well. I mean, I think also this this style of journalism means that. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Maybe more. I mean, Evans and Novak just write stuff, and some of it was wrong, and so what? You know. I mean, I could say the same thing with Tony Scott. You know, I review. I I love a lot of his reviews, but there's a subject subjectivity to all of this. You know, sure. every once in a while, he's going to love a movie, and I'm going to I'm going to hate it. Um, but in this, I mean, really, what. Uh, what Nate Silver seems to be almost saying is, no, just judge me by the numbers. I'm either right or I'm wrong, um, which is an interesting claim to make. And, and I wonder what happens if he's wrong a few times. Well, and, and he's going to be wrong a few times. I don't think he would put it that starkly. I think he is, because I think he acknowledges that there are different statistical models to try and predict who's going to be elected president. There are going to be different statistical models to figure out who your team should draft in the first round. Like the fact that, that, they, that he has built a model for that or his colleagues have built a model for any one of those questions doesn't mean it's the only one. I, I think his argument would be that even if the model isn't right, you know, and, and, and Nate hasn't picked every Senate race correctly, you know, he, he's, he's missed a, f- a few times. 
uh, even if you're not doing it right, the, the fact that you're doing it through this different framework of analysis as opposed to, well, I see a lot of yard signs for the Republican candidate, so I think he's going to do well, or, you know, I really like the way that that, that batter looks in the box, and that therefore I think, you know, he should be our, our number one draft pick. That it's, it's that what, what he would think of as the victory of hard numbers and analysis over eyeballing and punditry and the other things that he has sort of signed up against. So I, I think he would be uh, more than happy to have a nerd fight with someone who has a different <laughs> model on one of these questions. But but I think he his instinct seems to be uh, that's the better fight to have, not not uh, numbers versus pundits. Last quick area I wanted to get into. Um, one of the things that he's done on the site, uh, which you see on a lot of sites, is, uh, first of all, this is a shift for Nate Silver from lone wolf, maverick, data freak to manager of his own brand. Uh, and so he's got contributors. He's got people who work for him. Uh, and like a lot of sites, he's got uh, these little black and white thumbnail pictures uh, of all the people or many of the people who are contributors to his site running down the right-hand side of the site. One can't help but notice that they all basically are the same age or look like they're the same age. Uh, and they all kind of look like one another, too. It's one of the dangers, I think, of running those little thumbnails. But is there a way to solve that? I mean, I think his answer is, look, I, I went looking for, for modern data freaks. You know, I'm not going to get a 63-year-old Latino woman or, I mean, I, there just aren't that many people that I can pick from. Well, I know in the in the New York Magazine re- interview that you referenced earlier, he said that 85% of the applicants that he received for jobs there were, were male. And I wouldn't be surprised that, that, that that's true. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. On, on a certain level, I, I applaud the idea of putting those faces forward because it makes the the problem obvious. Mm-hmm. That is that is a step towards rec- you know making it, it clear that you know this is an issue and and one hopes that uh, over time uh, he'll be able to address that issue. I, I do think he's also right that there's a there's a very specific skill set that he is hiring for and it's a very limited skill set. Uh, like not many people in the journalism world have it. I and mean, a number of the people that he's hired don't come from the traditional journalism world. They come from the statistics world. And in that that world of people with those skills is not a perfect reflection of, of America's diversity. So part of it is, you know, he has to, he and ESPN more broadly have to do a good job and you know, uh, doing their best to look for those candidates. But there's also some work that needs to be done in, in the field. And that's why you have some people saying that you want to see, uh, they want to see women and they want to see, uh, you know, minorities getting, investing more in data journalism, investing, learning about learning these skills. Josh Benton, always great to talk to you. Do you want to pre- predict the winner uh, of the final four, the, the ultimate national champion? And then if you're better than Nate Silver, you can parlay that into you know, incredible investments. Well, as I said earlier, my heart my heart says the the raging Cajuns are going to come out of nowhere to win it all. <laughs> but I, I do I'm going to put my money on Louisville. All right, uh, great to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll talk again very soon. Thanks. All right, bye bye. Nate Silver, you have a time machine. You go into the future and then come back to our time and tell us what's going to happen. That's not fair, Nate Silver. Genius, you know what's going on all the time, Nate Silver. I'm concerned that if I get the paranoia vaccine, I won't know why I shouldn't have. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. The part of Bill Curry was played by Michael Ian Black. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. 
For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff getting an unoaked measles vaccine with buttery top notes and chewy tannins, visit our website, wnpr.org. Tomorrow, Bill and Julia's annual hour of bracket love. And now, back to Colin. I didn't realize the vaccines came in oaked and unoaked. Uh, but you should, I personally, I prefer an oaky vaccine. All right, so uh, our final segment today, we do want to talk about uh, some sad news that came uh, out of this weekend. Um, Everybody remembers David Brenner. Everybody remembers um, that special smile, that special face, that special delivery. Uh, In fact, as we were beginning the show before we went on the air, I was talking to Mark Oppenheimer on our Studio to Studio Connection, and I said this was the third segment, and he went, oh, because when I was growing up, whenever I would get to stay up late, um, quite frequently on The Tonight Show, David Brenner would be there either as a guest or hosting, and I always loved David Brenner. So it's easy to find uh, people who loved the guy. He passed uh, over the weekend. Um, wasn't so easy to find somebody who knew him, but we did find somebody, Graham Slayton, uh, who's the executive director of the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, Colorado, uh, knew uh, David Brenner well, uh, talked to him on a regular basis, and maybe tell us a little bit about the, the real David Brenner. First of all, welcome to the show, and condolences on your loss. Well, thank you. It was a a tough weekend around here. I would imagine. Now, explain your connection. How did you meet David Brenner? I met David um, in the summer of 2006 when he just came through the door, came into the office, and I heard all this commotion going on outside. And I came out of my office to the reception area, and there was David Brenner and Ty Babylonia doing this spontaneous routine about how David could not get the name of, I can't believe it's not Butter Straight. It turned into this five-minute running routine, <clears throat> very scatological in nature, of all the, the different ways you could screw up the name, I can't believe it's not Butter. And that's how I got to meet David. I always get, I can't believe it's not butter, and gee, your hair smells terrific mixed up. I, I just conflate the two one way or another. Yeah, you know, I, until reading the New York Times Obit today, I did not realize he had a long-running relationship with Thai Babylonia. He did. He did. It was a somewhat stormy relationship, um, two geniuses trying to make a, a world together, and I got to, to be witness to a fair amount of it and certainly uh, talked to him about it quite a bit over those years. And uh, it, it was one of the great loves of his life and one of the great challenges of his life at the same time. But you've you got to remember, <clears throat> David grew up as a street kid in, in uh, South Philly, and it just was... He was a hard-boiled customer sometimes, um, very defensive sometimes, and I can imagine that uh, in terms of, of being a romantic partner, he could be challenging, um, but he could also be absolutely adoring, and he certainly was, I think, both with Ty at those times. The um, David Brenner's given credit for being really one of the introducers of what's now called observational comedy. We're going to, for those of you who don't have a fresh David Brenner routine in your uh, heads, we're going to play a little bit um, from the David Letterman show where he's talking about Zoloft. I don't know if this comes up in the clip or not, but he he claims in the clip uh, to have sort of thought about this uh, while leaving his hotel room that day and actually written part of what he needs to say on his hotel room key. He has a a card key uh, in his hand that he's he's reading off of. So uh, here's David Brenner talking about the the medication Zoloft. Here are the side effects. Dry mouth, insomnia, diarrhea, (laughs) and sexual problems. (laughs) Now, of course you're going to have sexual problems if you have a dry mouth and diarrhea. So, so I thought, well, what is, what is this cure? I mean, what's worth 
all this. <laughs> and you know what it's for? Depression. <laughs> now, I don't get it. I mean, what's more depressing? You're laying in bed, you can't sleep. Your mouth is dry. You just soiled your pajamas. And you can't get laid. Graham Slayton, first of all, um, that's heaven for a comedian when people are not only laughing, they're applauding your jokes. They laugh and then they clap. You live for that if you're a comic. But what I want to believe also is that is that he really did, I mean, th- that being sort of a compulsive observer, he really had written down the, the side effects that he'd seen on the television commercial on the card key of his uh, for his hotel room that day. Is, is that a, a believable thing? Was he that kind of compulsive observer? I have absolutely no doubt about it. He was by far the funniest, legitimately funniest person I've ever known in my life. Um, one of the things that I got to do with him out here <clears throat> as we became friends is I became a skiing partner. And the skiing really became incidental to the lift rides because he would just go off spontaneously on some subject or other or tell a story from his past that was so hysterical that I'd have to wipe away the tears before I could put the the, uh, goggles back over my face and start doing a run. He was just funny all the time. And he got it from his father, who he said was the funniest person he had ever known. Uh, His father had actually... I started out as a vaudeville comedian, but because there were so many rabbis in in the family, um, he was told by the family that he could not be a comedian because he'd have to work on the Sabbath. So (laughs) his father gave up being a comedian but passed it on to his son, who was an absolute genius at it. Do you, uh, th- we only have about a minute left, but do you, do you mourn a person like this a little bit differently? This is a person who made people laugh all the time, and obviously this is a very sad time, a very rough weekend, as you said. Um, does the fact that he made you laugh so much kind of change it a little bit? Can, can, can you think of him even in your saddest moments and still laugh? Oh, of course. And here's one of the strange times that I was with him, was on a lift ride. It was probably the last time that we skied together. And his sister had died the night before. And he, uh, just on the lift ride out of nowhere, announced this. And then about 30 seconds later, he said, you're the first person I've told about this. Hmm. And then we got to the top of the list and said, now let's ski. And, and we spent the rest of the day skiing really hard, still laughing, and all of that. And that's how he would want to be remembered right now. He'd like you to honor him by continue laughing and look for those things that are fun in life and not be afraid to observe the absurdity that goes on all around us. Well, apparently the David Brenner lift ride is a lift ride is a uh, thing because uh, actually Peter Segel, who put us in touch with Graham Slayton, uh, has also said the same thing. So thanks to Peter Segel, by the way, for helping us find Graham. Thanks to Graham for helping us remember David Brenner. Thanks to uh, my crew here, Betsy Kaplan, Kion Wolf, uh, and we'll be back tomorrow with our NCAA March Madness, Julia Pistel, Bill Curry, Bracket of Love Hour. You make me laugh. You make me laugh You make me laugh I'm Kyone Wolf, and I'm not afraid of getting a vaccine shot. I mean, how bad could it be, you know? Okay, here we go. Yeah, Jenny McCarthy is right. It's disgusting. Ugh.